Well, thank you very much, and um, thank you all for coming on such a miserable afternoon. Uh, I've actually just come down two flights of stairs, so uh, I can only imagine how horrible it is outside right now. Anyway, um, yes, it's Complex Life, a freak accident. I admit it's uh, an argumentative kind of a title, and I will put forward to you a kind of an argument today. These, these ideas go a long way back in biology, uh, and there isn't an answer as such, but there are viewpoints and there is evidence, and a lot has changed really since 40 years ago when uh, Jacques Monod wrote his famous book, Chance and Necessity. Um, Stephen Jay Gould, of course, also wrote a famous book, Wonderful Life, in which he argued essentially that, um, that evolution is contingent on all kinds of um, chance events, and he argued specifically around the Cambrian explosion and the origin of animals and so on. But basically, if you wound back the clock back to that time and then set it rolling forward again, he argued that uh, you, would, you would not find the same kind of animals that we see today. Now, today I want to talk about a much earlier period of evolution, the origin of complex life, uh, rather than animals specifically. Uh, but on the other side of that, uh, Simon Conway Morris, um, he was actually essentially made famous by Stephen Jay Gould's book, Wonderful Life, uh, but he never really took very well to that, and he argued... Uh, quite the opposite point, that uh, contingency is a fairly small factor in evolution and that convergent evolution it dominates. Convergence is essentially to do with engineering principles and the likelihood that there's constraints on natural selection forcing it to go the same way multiple times. And, and Conway Morris actually argues that you'd end up with something like humanity again, right down to uh, four fingers and a thumb and so on. Christian de Duve as well uh, has argued essentially that the power of natural selection forces uh, life in certain directions, and that there's, a, there's an inevitability uh, about the direction of evolution. Well, that does beg the question, which uh, SETI first addressed 50 years ago, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, it's known as the Fermi paradox. Uh, Fermi, uh, the, the, the physicist, of course, uh, who was uh, a bit of a believer in extraterrestrial intelligence, but asked this question, well, where are they then? His, uh, his colleague, um, Leo Schillard said, uh, he was Hungarian-born, he said, in fact, they're among us. They call themselves Hungarians. <laughs> but still, you know, 50 years later, we just haven't seen anything from SETI or, or, or more recently even the discovery of uh, Earth-like planets in inverted commas like Kepler-22. Um, there may be plenty of bacteria out there. Who knows? But um, what are the chances of intelligent life, complex life, evolving elsewhere in the universe. Well, if we can't find it by looking out, perhaps we can look in at life on Earth as we know it. And there are some paradoxes, really. This is a, a tree of life, as you'd find in any textbook. And you can see it's, it's immediately unexpected, if you're not familiar with this kind of thing, that there are three big groups here. There's the bacteria, uh, and you can see what they look like. We're familiar with things like E. coli and so on. And there's this other group. They look a lot like bacteria. They're called archaea. They're also prokaryotes. They look very similar. Uh, they're almost indistinguishable, in fact, in terms of electron microscopy. But in their biochemistry and their genetics, they're really rather different. And then you have the group that we belong to, the eukaryotes. Uh, and you can see immediately looking at this that all complex life as we know it, all multicellular organisms, all animals, all plants, fungi, algae, and so on, they are in just that tiny little group. If I use the cursor here. This tiny little group here. Um, so the question is, well, what happened down this part of the tree of life? Why is it that after four billion years of evolution in practically infinite populations, you get just these tiny cells, bacteria, archaea, and really nothing much more morphologically compli complicated than that? In terms of their biochemistry, in terms of the genetics, they're 
ingenious, but in terms of their morphology, they appear to be really quite stunted. So what was happening? That, I should say, is true at the cellular level. It's not just true at the level of elephants and so on. It's true. This is a, this is a fairly bog-standard single-celled alga, Euglena. Uh, and this is roughly to scale. This is one of the more complex prokaryotes, uh, bacteria that you find around these planktomycetes. This is roughly to scale. Uh, now, these planktomycetes have a number of properties which have been said to be relatively complex for, for bacteria, but you can see there is just no comparison really at all there. So eukaryotes, even at the level of single cells, are enormously more complex than, uh, than bacteria. And it's very difficult to tell between them. If you were to look down a microscope at these two cells, most people would barely be able to tell the difference. Most non-biologists, indeed a lot of biologists, would not be able to tell you what kind of cell this is. In fact, it's a paramecium, so it's a single-celled uh, protozoan. Um, but, you know, this has 40,000 genes. It's got a lot of complexity. Here's a pancreatic acinar cell from our own body, which has half as many genes, in fact, not many more than that. They're very difficult to distinguish. All this complexity arose at the cellular level very early in evolution, around about perhaps 2 billion years ago. Now, there's a paradox here, and it's this that really interests me. So all complex life, as I've said, is based on this particular complex cell type, cells with all kinds of things inside, as I've just shown you. They're called eukaryotic cells, but don't be scared of names. Um, they're full of membranes, they're full of dynamic cytoskeletons, they've got all kinds of things going on, they've got the nucleus, eukaryotic in fact means true nucleus and that's uh, their defining feature. They share all kinds of complex traits, so basically all eukaryotes are sexual, or at least if they are not sexual then they've lost it later on, that last common ancestor appears to have been a sexual cell. Um, they have a nucleus, they all have mitochondria and I'll come more on that later. Uh, various properties like phagocytosis, the ability to go around and physically engulf other cells, essentially eating them. They also are not found, none of these traits are found in bacteria at all, but they're found essentially in all eukaryotes. So prokaryotes, bacteria and archaea, these two groups, have none of these traits. They show essentially no tendency to evolve any of them. They just remain morphologically simple. Why not? If natural selection is about traits evolving step by steps, small steps, each one offers some kind of an advantage, and the nucleus offers an advantage, you would predict that things like the nucleus or sex would just keep on evolving in bacteria, would evolve perhaps scores of times. That's actually exactly what we see with the eye. So from some kind of simple light-sensitive spot in early animals, um, the eye, morphologically different kinds of eye, as you can see here, have evolved essentially independently, admittedly from this common starting point, but from, from that starting point, independently on 60 or 70 different occasions. That's actually what natural selection predicts, that each step offers a small advantage, it's selected for different environments, different sets of circumstances mean that you have different morphologies. Um, that's what you'd predict. That's not what we see, though, with complex life. So what was different? Well. The answer that you're most likely to hear from people is that there was some kind of an environmental bottleneck. So the, the most famous one is when oxygen levels first rose in the atmosphere, which was around about 2.2 billion years ago, 2,200 million years ago. Um, and you see all kinds of things in the rocks, these, uh, these banded iron formations, stunningly beautiful to look at. That's actually not particularly diagnostic, but it does show an increase in oxygen levels. Um, so perhaps 
there was some kind of a bottleneck that as soon as oxygen levels rose, then eukaryotic cells were possible. Other people, uh, Simon Conway Morris, for example, has talked about as the oceans cooled down over time, then perhaps that was a bottleneck eukaryotes for the most part can't deal with high temperatures, so perhaps they arose as soon as they could, as soon as the ocean temperatures cooled down enough. Perhaps there was something like a snowball Earth. The date is wrong of this snowball Earth, 700 million years ago, but there was an earlier one around about 2.2 billion years ago, the same kind of time as the great oxidation event. There are possible bottlenecks through which eukaryotes could have arisen. And if you look at the eukaryotic tree, again, this is a different way of depicting it, it's the, these five large groups here. This is a much more modern tree than the one I just showed you. These five super um, kingdoms, if you like. Um, so the fungi, the fungi and the algae, the uh, sorry, fungi are here, the metazoa, which is basically all animals are here. But a lot, of these, a lot of these organisms are fairly unfamiliar to most people. But what I really want to bring out on this is that these sticks here give an indication of the genetic distance between them. And it's a very, very short distance. There's far more variation within these groups than there is between the common ancestor of each group. That looks a lot like some kind of an explosive radiation. It looks like a bottleneck. As soon as you have that cell there, the ancestor, the last common ancestor of all eukaryotes, it diverged. There was a, there was a, there was a great radiation. So it does look like a bottleneck. But there's different kinds of bottlenecks that you could have. It could be the environmental kind of bottleneck that I've been talking about, changing oxygen levels, changing temperatures. Um, or it could be biological. It may be that there's something to do with the structure of bacteria, or archaea, and so on, which prevented them from doing it. And, and they got through that bottleneck as soon as something changed about the structure. So not necessarily genetic, but perhaps architectural. Well, that does seem to be the answer. And the key to all of this came with the discovery, or at least not so much the discovery, so much as uh, this large group was pointed out by Tom Cavalier-Smith, who's uh, now at Oxford, uh, in the early 1980s. He called attention to this group that he called the Archizoa. And they are all morphologically quite simple cells. They're a kind of a, a living fossil, if you like, between the, the prokaryotes, bacteria and so on, and the more complex eukaryotes. And he argued that... None of these have mitochondria. Now, I'll talk more about mitochondria in a few minutes, but mitochondria are basically the power plants that give uh, eukaryotes their energy. He argued that this is a kind of a halfway house before the earliest eukaryotic cells had acquired mitochondria at all, and therefore they should give us some insight into how complex life actually arose. Well, they did. They certainly did, but not as Cavalier-Smith anticipated at all. It turns out having spent 20 years now studying these in a lot of detail, both in their, uh, in their structures and also in their genetics, that all of them had mitochondria in the past, and they lost them. They became uh, converted by reductive evolution, by specialization, into other organelles. So in the case of uh, Giardia, for example, which, uh, which is a parasite that causes all kinds of stomach uh, upsets and so on, they've got these little organelles called mitosomes that are almost certainly derived from mitochondria. Trichomonas has hydrogenosomes and so on. Again, they, they uh, appear to be, be tiny organelles that have derived from mitochondria. So there's several conclusions that we can draw from this. The first one is that they are genuine ecological intermediates. They really are there. There's about a 1,000 species of these things. It doesn't matter whether or not they're evolutionary intermediates. They haven't been outcompeted to extinction which is exactly what you predict if the environment, if the bottleneck was environmental. 
So they're still there. It's not as if there's some change in the environmental circumstances that allow eukaryotes to flourish and then the sophisticated ones that already exist outcompete everything else which is less sophisticated. These things are less sophisticated, but they're there. There's a thousand species or more of them, and they're doing perfectly well. Um, every one of these thousand species of archezoa arose from more complex ancestors. They evolved by reductive evolution. A lot of them are parasites, and, and they've specialized to a particular niche, but that doesn't account for all of them. But it's an interesting thing that all of them had an, an ancestor that was a lot more complex than any known bacterium. In fact, it was basically from that same last eukaryotic common ancestor that was already a complex cell. Uh, and then the third point from this is that because all of them turn out to have had mitochondria and then lost them, that last eukaryotic common ancestor must have had mitochondria. And that begs the question, was the acquisition of mitochondria um, and the origin of the eukaryotic cell one and the same event? Now, for those who are worried by words like mitochondria, which uh, I wrote a book on them, and uh, I called it power sex suicide, trying to sex them up. And um, it kind of backfired me on me a little bit because people are nervous to be seen. The kind of people who want to read a book about mitochondria are usually quite nervous to be seen on the tube reading a book called power sex suicide. <laughs> and someone, someone actually uh, wrote, did a review of it, and they said, well, I, I gave up smoking on, on reading... Um, Nick Layton's first book on, on oxygen, so I approached his book on sex with some trepidation. <laughs> anyway, uh, the mitochondria were first discovered by, by this guy, Richard Altman, back in 1895, um, and he came up with a, a, a particular way of staining them, which in fact dissolved essentially all the rest of the cytoplasm. So this is what he saw. These are his original drawings from 1895 using a camera lucida, uh, and they really are stunning images. He thought that these were the elementary organisms and that cells themselves and, the, and whole organisms were actually built from these elementary organisms, which uh, he never called them mitochondria, but that's what he was looking at down the microscope. In fact, um, he, uh, he, he was made a, a laughing stock. He was ridiculed, uh, and he became very reclusive, hid in his own room a lot of the time, um, eventually became known as the ghost and died insane in about 1906, and this seemed to have been the fate of a lot of these early pioneers of symbiosis in evolution, the idea that cells um, interact together and cooperate rather than necessarily just compete. Lynn Margulis, of course, picked up on some of these ideas. She just died uh, a month or so ago. Uh, but she had essentially taken up ideas from people like Richard Altman from early in the century and then worked with them. Now, what I'm going to present to you today is rather different from either Richard Altman or Lynn Margulis. But what I want to call attention to is that if all eukaryotic cells have mitochondria, uh, could the acquisition of mitochondria have been that biological bottleneck? Was Altman, in some sense, actually correct? Well, there's a lot of genomic evidence now that suggests that that is actually what happened. So here on the, on the uh, left-hand side, you can see a, a kind of cartoon depiction of a standard tree of life showing those three domains, the bacteria, the archaea, and the eukaryotes. And here on the right-hand side, is something close to what the genomic evidence tells us probably happened. This is not, as Margulis had argued, a serial endosymbiosis with lots of partners uh, over lots of periods of time. This is really a single event. This is uh, one bacterium getting inside one archaeon as a host cell. 
and it, it was that that gave rise to the eukaryotes. So there was a genomic fusion, two cells together, both of them prokaryotes. Neither of them were sophisticated cells. This is a point which a lot of people still squabble over, and we don't know that for sure. The identity of the host cell is not really clear. But this is a hypothesis which is a testable hypothesis in various ways, and it's certainly a lot more thrilling. In fact, this idea has been called, rather than a tree of life, it's obviously not really a, a tree in a conventional sense, it's been called the ring of life. Um, Jim Lake came up with, uh, with that title. He wrote a paper which he submitted to Nature entitled One Ring to Rule Them All. And uh, Nature accepted the paper but rejected the title, unfortunately. <laughs> One issue with this idea of, a, of some kind of chimeric cell in which the host cell is a prokaryote and, and not a primitive eukaryote that already have the potential to go around and engulf other cells by phagocytosis is the question, well, how did a bacterium get inside an archaeon? And the answer is, well, we don't really know. Um, but here's one example. This is actually the only example that we know of. This is obviously a very rare event in all the bacteria that we've ever seen. These are the only bacteria living inside another bacterium. It's not an archaeon, it's a cyanobacteria here. You can just make out the, the, the thylakoid membranes in the, in, in the cyanobacteria responsible for photosynthesis. These are intracellular bacteria. How they got in, nobody really knows. But this is the kind of starting point that might have been responsible for the evolution of complex life, for the origin of the eukaryotic cell. It doesn't look much, does it? I mean, what good was that, you might say? That boils down to this question. Well, if these cells here are the, the intracellular bacteria were the ancestors of the mitochondria, which became the energy-generating organelles uh, for, for all eukaryotic cells, well, what did the mitochondria do for us? Like, what did the Romans do for us, apart from hygiene and roads and uh, aqueducts and so on? All kinds of advantages were being put forward for mitochondria, what they did for us. Now, I won't really go through that list in any detail, but the trouble with that compartmentalization, they offer internal compartments and so on, aerobic respiration, you can respire using oxygen and so on, protection against oxygen toxicity, or, or, or at least even, even swallowing up all the oxygen to protect their host cell against oxygen. Um, none of them actually work. Bacteria could do all the same things. They can compartmentalize themselves. They're, they're, none of those are really a reason why mitochondria are special and different that bacteria can't do for themselves. Even the speed of respiration, which appears to be the one thing that mitochondria really do for eukaryotes, which is to say they provide the power for eukaryotic cells to become larger. Well, if you just measure the rate of respiration, you find that bacteria respire faster, around about three times faster. That's per gram, and it's that per gram number that I want to touch on now because it's, uh, it's the wrong way of looking at it. If you consider metabolic rate per gram, which is to say oxygen consumption per gram, these, this, these are average values taken from the literature um, of bacteria in red here uh, compared with, uh, with, with single-celled eukaryotes. In other words, algae and protists and so on, the kind of thing I've been showing you, like paramecium. These are all logarithmic scales, so the units are tenfold gaps between each unit. So this is around about three times the rate of respiration in bacteria compared to uh, the average for single-celled eukaryotes. Um, that's per gram. But if you do it per cell, you actually find that it's around about 5,000 times more energy, uh, higher metabolic rate per cell in eukaryotes than you have in bacteria. Now, 
that's again, it's a logarithmic scale. So it's a 5,000 fold difference. Why? Well, simply because on average, eukaryotes are a lot, lot bigger than bacteria, 15,000 times larger. So you end up with this 5,000 fold difference. So, okay, eukaryotes are bigger. That's what that difference is there. If you look in terms of the amount of DNA, though, you find that that difference has gone. Essentially, what eukaryotes are doing, they've become very much larger, they have a lot more energy, and they're using that energy to support a much larger genome. So in terms of the total amount of DNA, there's essentially no difference in terms of energy per megabase of DNA between the two groups. Well, what happens if we equalize for genome size? That's essentially what I've just done. If you were to consider in terms of number of genes rather than the amount of DNA, uh, eukaryotes are able to carry around about 5,000-fold more DNA or genes than bacteria can. That, as I say, is simply because eukaryotes are that much larger. So if you equalize for cell volume as well, this is what you see. Now, I'll explain how I come to this answer in a moment, but essentially, if you were to expand this tiny bacterium up to the 15,000-fold, up to eukaryotic-sized average cells, you end up with a 200,000-fold difference in energy per gene. That's the real scale of the gulf between bacteria and eukaryotes. It's not in terms of energy per cell, it's in terms of energy per gene. Eukaryotes have got 200,000-fold more energy per gene. Or alternatively, turn that on its head, they could support a genome 200,000 times larger. They don't support genomes that much larger, but they could in principle. So, how did that number, where did that number come from? Essentially, it's to do with the way in which bacteria breathe, respire. They respire by pumping protons, we don't need to know the details of that, across their cell membrane. And that means immediately that they're using their, they're using their membrane, which is a two-dimensional surface, uh, to generate energy in the form of ATP. And they're using that for protein synthesis, for, um, for, for, for converting their genes into proteins for, for living, basically. If you were to double or treble the size of that bacterium, then you have immediately constraints with the surface area to volume ratio, because the volume will increase as the cube, the surface area by the square. And so the surface area to volume ratio halves for every doubling of the linear dimensions. So immediately you have a problem, that if you simply expand the bacterium up to eukaryotic size, and it continues to respire over its cell membrane, then that's why you get this 200,000-fold difference. It simply doesn't work that way. But that doesn't really explain why can't it just internalize respiration as eukaryotes do inside the cell. That gets around those surface area to volume constraints immediately. So why don't they do that? Well, to cut a long story short, this is paramecium again. These are the mitochondria within paramecium. Every single one of these mitochondria has copies of a genome, the mitochondrial genome. Um, basically, all known eukaryotes that have mitochondria that are able to use their mitochondria to generate ATP have, small cop have copies of a small genome. So this is the mitochondrial genome. Now, the idea that I'll put forward to you is that it's the copies of the genome which are critical here. What these cells lack, these are bacteria, and again, this is roughly for scale, they all have internal membranes. They're all capable of internalizing respiration. You can see their cyanobacteria at the bottom, nitrosococcus, nitrosomonas at the top. They all have internal membranes. It's not difficult for them to internalize respiration, but they can't expand up onto that kind of scale unless they have copies of a genome to control respiration. That's the basic idea. And again, just to put this in perspective, here's the cyanobacterium I just showed you. This is 
euglena, which is a, which is a, a eukaryotic alga, they basically live by the same mechanism. They both live by photosynthesis, oxygenic photosynthesis. They split water using the power of the sun. But this is the difference in size and complexity. So it's not to do with the niche. It's to do with the, something to do with the structure of the cell. Now, there's an immediate test case for this. There are, in fact, some giant bacteria around. This is a very good example. This is a polypiscium, so kind of a battleship of a cell. Here's paramecium. It's dwarfed by a polypiscium. You can see E. coli up there with the arrow. It's tiny. This is, this, this, I mean, this is visible to the naked eye. This is around about 0.6 of a millimeter long. So, I mean, we're still dealing with small objects, but it's enormous compared to single-celled uh, eukaryotes. This is actually even larger here. This is, um, this is Thea margarita. Uh, it's actually basically a giant vacuole uh, with a very thin film of cytoplasm around the edge of it. But this is a single cell, a single thiomargarita cell. This is a fruit fly, Drosophila. It's as big as the head of a Drosophila. This is an enormous cell. They are respiring over their plasma membrane in exactly the same way as all bacteria. If you require genes to control respiration, as I've just suggested to you, they must have genes, otherwise they wouldn't work at all. Do they? Yes. This is, again, polypiscium. They have as many as 200,000 copies of their full genome dotted right next to the plasma membrane, all the way around the cell. Here again, in Thaya Margarita, around about 15,000 copies. That big black space at the top is the vacuole. So there's nothing going on in there at all. It's metabolically inert. <coughs> so this is not a proof, but at least it's consistent with the idea that you require genes to control respiration in some way. And that comes to the problem that bacteria have. To expand up to eukaryotic size, they can do it, but they require copies of their genome. And what they all do is they have copies of their full genome. So they have multiple copies, in the case of a polypiscium, as I say, around about 200,000 copies of their full genome. Now, these are from measured metabolic rates and known genome sizes. This E. coli, if you look at the size of the genome relative to the me measured metabolic rate, and you take into consideration the number of copies of that full genome, you find there's no difference between E. coli, thiomargarita, and a polypiscium. Because they've expanded up, because they have so many copies of the genome, what they are, in effect, is a consortium of multiple cells, each genome controlling essentially the same amount of cytoplasm. So they gain no energetic advantage whatsoever and have no spare energ energetic capacity to support a larger genome. They can support more of them, but the individual genomes cannot get larger. There's no spare energy there to do that. So that's what the problem is for bacteria. They can expand, but they gain no advantage from doing so. And they then have all kinds of problems in cell division and so on. It's not easy for a cell on the size of uh, a polypiscium to divide. It's got to come up with a whole new way of doing it. It survives only in very limited circumstances. So a polypiscium uh, is found only, to our knowledge, in the um, intestines of surgeon fish, and it's never been found anywhere else. So what's happening in eukaryotes? We go back to this position. Let's take this as the starting point for the eukaryotic cell. Bacterium inside another bacterium, or at least an archaeon. What's happening? Well, these are cells, these are bacteria here. Let's say you have a standard mutation, which allows, the, so shown in yellow in the top there, that allows uh, the, the bacteria that inherit that mutation to replicate a bit faster. They gradually come to dominate. They dominate that population, take over the whole population, essentially. But if the conditions then change, then that whole thing will reverse itself. 
and start to go the other way. So a mutation here will end up going back the other way. What happens over time is that bacteria maintain a smaller genome as they can get away with for the most part, but it fluctuates in size. They pick up genes, bilateral gene transfer, they have random duplications in genomes, and they lose genes as fast as they can. But they have a kind of fluctuating genome size, which is a minimum size to remain in a free-living lifestyle. This is what happens if you've got an intracellular bacteria, so cells living within cells. You still have a population of them. They still are bacteria. They still behave like bacteria. If you have a mutation that allows one to replicate faster than the others, that happens. But now, because that internal environment is so consistent compared to the fluctuating external environment, there's really very little pressure to force them to acquire new genes. They tend to shrink over time their genome becomes smaller and smaller. And that's exactly what we see. There are hundreds of cases in eukaryotes where you have bacterial cells living inside eukaryotic host cells. So this is different to the origin of the eukaryote where we're talking about a prokaryotic cell, a, a bacterium. These are all bacteria living inside large complex eukaryotic cells. And one thing they all have in common is they've all lost genes. So in the case of Bucknera, the genome size is about roughly half the size of the smallest known free-living bacteria. Rickettsia, again, is very small. Cartonella is the smallest known. It's actually smaller than some mitochondrial genomes. There's a general tendency to reduce complexity of intracellular parasites. It's a well-known trend, and it's explained quite simply by competition between cells within a cell, given that they can get a lot of what they need from the host cell. That's exactly what happened to the mitochondria. It happened over two billion years, or thereabouts, and it's left all of these with very tiny genomes, only encoding in the case of, uh, in the, in the case of humans, there's only 13 proteins left encoded by that mitochondrial genome. It varies between different groups of, of eukaryotes, but basically there are very few genes left there. And the few genes that are left there, as I say, appear to be necessary. They appear to be required for respiration to work. They allow this expansion of cell volume by around about 15,000-fold, if not more. Now, what that means is that the defining character, I mentioned to you earlier on, the defining characteristic of eukaryotes, which means true nucleus, is the nucleus. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is that it's actually not just the nucleus by itself, but it's the fact that you have two genomes, one of which is the nucleus, which is huge, and the other, the mitochondrial genome, which is necessarily tiny. And it's the very fact that the mitochondrial genes are tiny that allows the nuclear genome to be so large. If you were to take a, a kind of a random walk through a population of E. coli cells, you'll come across a similarly sized genome, nucleoid, at around about the same distance from each other as you walk through this population of cells. If you were to do the same thing through the cytoplasm of Thaya margarita here, you'll find exactly the same thing. You'll come across a similarly sized genome at a similar distance. Each genome controls a similar amount of a similar volume and cytoplasm. If you were to do that through a population of Euglena, though, what you'd see would be one enormous nuclear genome, followed by, these are the tiny mitochondrial genomes, and that is staining. They're even smaller than that. This is just a, a depiction. Uh, and then as you get into the next cell, another massive genome. So what really happened is that you have multibacterial power supporting each cell. But if it was simply multibacterial power and each bacteria was not kind of pared down, there would be no advantage. It's the very fact that these multibacteria have lost pretty much everything that they had as bacteria and have dedicated their full resources to the good of the host cell, in effect, 
that, that the nuclear genome, that they, all this multibacterial power can be dedicated to supporting a very large nuclear genome. And it's very easy to show that as well. If you take this into consideration, this is what I've already shown you here, energy per genome uh, in, in bacteria. And here it is. Again, this is a, um, a logarithmic scale. So three or four orders of magnitude difference. So this is uh, Euglena again, as we've been talking about. This is amoeba proteus, which is a large amoeba. Um, again, taking into consideration the fact that a lot of the time they have more than one nucleus, and so more than one copy of their own genome. But still, you see a difference of three or four orders of magnitude. And this is, again, exactly what you see if you look across the whole kingdom. This is the genome size range for bacteria and archaea. Again, logarithmic scale. So protozoa, protists and so on, have genome sizes around about up to four, to four orders of magnitude more than the largest known bacterial and archaeal genome. The same goes for basically all eukaryotes. We're up two, three, four, even five orders of magnitude in terms of the number of genes. And this, I think, boils down to the fact that they can. They've got the energy to support it, simply because the mitochondria have lost their genes. And the only reason they could lose their genes was that they <coughs> were cells within a cell. So to summarize and finish, bacteria are small, simple. They're able to uh, support a genome which is perfectly large enough to do what they need to do, in fact, with a great deal of metabolic sophistication. But they can't get very much larger. If they get larger, they have these surface area to volume constraints. They begin to lose control over respiration unless they have multiple copies of a genome. If they have multiple copies of a genome, then they get no um, advantage in terms of energy per gene or the genome size that they're able to support. They're simply left with this sticky situation that they have multiple copies of a complete genome. It's only when you have a population of cells within a cell that can compete among themselves <clears throat> that allow loss of DNA from all of these, and the cell as a whole carries no more DNA than that cell as a whole. It's just that you have this genomic asymmetry, that here you have tiny genomes energetically supporting a massive genome. In the case of giant bacteria, all the genomes are exactly the same and are necessarily reasonably small. So, is complex life a freak accident? Yeah, I reckon. Um, just to recapitulate the argument, internalization of respiration is necessary. Uh, and only endosymbiosis is able to do that because endosymbiosis gives you a population of cells that compete among themselves uh, within, within a large cell, and that allows the nuclear genome to expand. And that's basically, I'm not suggesting that this has driven uh, evolution towards complex life. What I'm suggesting is it's, it has permitted it. It has allowed the acquisition of lots of DNA, large numbers of genes. It's the raw material for future evolution. Endosymbiosis, which is to say cells within the cell, is common within eukaryotes that can go around and physically engulf other cells. But we know of only one example in prokaryotes. And one thing which is clear from studying the eukaryotic cells themselves is that the relationship between them, between the mitochondria and the host cell is fraught. It is difficult. It's not easy to get that right. So not only is it very unusual to see bacteria inside bacteria, but the relationship of a cell living within another cell is very hard to get right. Um, and so I would argue that these are essentially bioenergetic principles and so are likely to apply to anywhere else. Bacteria may quite well be quite common throughout the universe, but it requires some kind of a contingent event. It's not simply natural selection acting on random mutations in a large population of bacteria that inevitably gives rise to complex life. It requires this contingent event, which not only is rare, but even when it's happened, is difficult to get it right. So don't panic, as the Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy says. 
Uh, we're unlikely to have to suffer Vogon poetry reading sessions. We're unlikely to meet aliens. I would say that this is probably the reason why SETI has so far been unsuccessful. I'm not suggesting that we should abandon the search. These are ideas, and the point about science is ideas need testing. Arguments are valuable, but what they should do is set up testable pr uh, predictions and hypotheses and so on. And there are a number that derive from this, and that's what I'm spending my time working on. I remember that Darwin described uh, the origin of species as one long argument, uh, and these are the kind of arguments that I think we need to bring to bear in terms of uh, not only whether life is common, complex life is common throughout the universe, but also the kind of properties that we would expect it to have. Would they be similar to the kind of properties we see on Earth? I think the answer is yes, they probably would be. Anyway, on that note, I shall say thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions. Very quickly, before I finish, <coughs> I've been privileged, um, as Jack mentioned at the beginning, to have uh, been funded these last three years as a Provost Venture Research Fellowship. It's just been re-advertised. Um, I'm not eligible to apply, unfortunately, but uh, if you're at UCL, you are eligible to apply. It's three years of funding uh, for really transformative research. Um, essentially, as, as it was put to me, big ideas that are unlikely to be funded by the research councils. So if, you, if you've got any of those, um, this is a wonderful source of funding to give you the freedom to think and to tackle really big questions. It's been a privilege for me. My time's coming to an end on that, but I shall do my damnedest to keep on doing the same kind of thing. If you want to apply to Don Braben, uh, the email address there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick, for talking on really what is a, a very big idea. We do have um, a minute or two for some questions. If you do have one, um, someone at the front, if you could wait for a microphone so that they can hear you on our online audience. Uh, thank you. Uh, Nick, the um, internal structure of eukaryotic cells, it sort of, uh, follows the endosymbiosis with prokaryotic cells. Is the case for the nucleus as well? Is what, sorry? Is it the case for the nucleus of the eukaryotic cell? Was it a bacterium? In the um, well, again, there's, there's, there's no agreement on that. It's highly unlikely that it was a bacterium, uh, if only from the morphological structure. The, the, the structure of the nuclear membrane is basically a series of folded squashed bags uh, with pores between them. And, you know, it's not the mitochondria, the chloroplasts and so on have essentially a cell-like structure. The nucleus does not have a, a cell membrane structure at all. It's something different. It's, it's also derived from the endoplasmic reticulum, and I would say it's not an endosymbiotic.